All right, welcome to the Grizzle Podcast, episode one. Got my man here, Scott Willis. I'm Thomas What's Jordan. What's going on, Tom? We are Grizzle. Scott, you want to hit him, hit him with the agenda? What, what are we going to talk about on episode one of the Grizzle Pod? Oh, yeah. So we're talking about Putin and Musk maybe doing a clubhouse, what that means. We also got equity inflows are redlining at all-time highs. And then we're talking housing. Why it's an asset inflation HQ in the housing market. And then we also got remote work, why that's here to stay. And we're ending it off with some pot stock chatter. So that's the agenda, Tom. Great agenda. Well, let's start it off with who is Grizzle, because uh, this is episode one. I think it's worth uh, highlighting. So we started Grizzle now just over three years ago. Uh, the idea was uh, we just felt everything kind of sucked in finance. So, you know, we, we wanted to mix it up. Uh, so Scott and I both worked in uh, institutional uh, in the institutional investing landscape, uh, called Wall Street, Bay Street, uh, that world. Uh, I was a portfolio manager. I managed uh, resources, so that was everything from um, gold, uh, oil and gas, and sustainability assets, the whole enchilada. I also started the sustainability franchise, one of the first franchises in Canada, uh, which was uh, so you know, that whole ESG term before it was cool. That was over 10 years ago, long time ago. That was uh, so I started that at TD Asset Management, which is uh, the largest asset manager in Canada. So uh, that's uh, that's my background. Uh, Scott, tell them about you. And I did research. I, uh, I worked at a bunch of firms on Wall Street and then I ended up uh, at TD in Canada as well. So I have a deep background in all sorts of research, different sectors. Here at Grizzle, we do commodities, we do tech, we do growth. Anything that's fast growing, that looks attractive, we're covering it. And we're going to help you understand uh, the potential there. So so that's right. that's who Grizzle is. Bang on. Yeah, so, uh, so yeah, so we, we've been at this for a long time. Uh, we kicked it off with uh, cannabis. That was, you know, that was really our, like, we, we just felt the research wasn't good just because a lot of, it, it was a lot of just nobody's covering the sector. Uh, we just felt that there wasn't really a, there wasn't a reality, right? A lot of folks who just had no connection to the plant uh, talking big things about the, you know, on, on an equity uh, valuation perspective. We're like, you guys know nothing. Uh, anyways, uh, that, that's how Grizzle was. No, I mean, not to mention conflict of interest. So you, you weren't getting the, the best research you could find. We thought it could it could be done better. And so we did. Yeah, 100%. And, and this is something that uh, that uh, for, for folks who aren't uh, don't know the whole Wall Street landscape, uh, it uh, sell side research is riddled, riddled with conflict of interest. And and the biggest issue conf conflict of interest there is just that, uh, you know, you're producing this research, but on the other side, you're also the investment bank, you're, you're also bringing these deals to market. So your natural tendency is just to be bullish, 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 everything. And you know, any like, you know, any schmuck, could sit there and type a bullish note when they know that their their investment banking arm is is going to be doing the deal. Like that's the way it works. Yeah. So that that's the issue. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so anyway, it, that was at a high level of you know where we were like you know cannabis was a, a important area. Then we became the kings of the IPO. Uh, Scott, you want to give a little bit of background on 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 how that came to being? That that was a, it. Sort of a beyond meat. <laughs> which yeah, which, uh, which ended up being one of our most famous historic calls uh, because all the investment banks, uh, regulation prevents them from actually releasing research. And Scott, what's funny enough is that none of the other um, none of the other Wall Street research firms produced anything on Beyond. They could have, 
because they're not in the business of actually finding winners, Scott. <laughs> you know, their investment banker says, oh, listen, we got a deal live. You're going to initiate it 30 days later or whatever the regulatory period is. So we were the first to put out uh, what we felt was one of the most attractive IPOs of, uh, you know, over a decade and it proved to be one of the best. So it started with Beyond. Uh, and Scott, you want to just talk, you know, we covered everything. Uh, we talk, covered tech, the whole yeah. thing. Yeah, so again, I mean, Grizzle's doing it a bit differently. We put out our research, we'll be first. So if you're trying to figure out what to do with a certain stock, whether it looks good or you should stay away, we'll be the first ones out. And we started with Beyond Meat, and then we moved into tech. We've done uh, Uber, Lyft, Peloton, you name it, C3 AI, all the software stocks, the consumer tech stocks. Basically, again, as I said, if it's a hot sector and it's a fast-growing uh, industry with, with upside, we're going to be covering it for you, helping you understand what to do. Plus, we look at it a bit different than all these brokers again. We look long-term. What's the potential? We're not worried about, oh, what's my price target this month? What's my price target next month? That gets you all whipsawed. You can sell out of great stocks over time if you think about it that way. So Grizzle gets it to you first, and we do it differently, and we think it ends up with better outcomes for you. 100%. I don't think, you know, one of the greatest examples of that, uh, if you look back at 2020, which one of our great calls was Penn Gaming, uh, it was funny, right? Because the one thing we're, we specifically try not to do is to do these like, oh, uh, a target price that's a little 20% higher. And then once it reaches that target price, you say, well, it's another 20% higher. Get it right the first time. That you know, That's what we're trying to do. Get it right the first time. And so, yeah, people will be like, oh, that's a crazy target price. Well, you listen. If this is a company growing in excess of, you know, three, you know, uh, in cannabis, there were companies growing 100% beyond me over 100%. You don't value those things on a one year forward basis. You have to look at it on a big term, big picture. You know, what potential market share can they uh, uh, ultimately get? Uh, in disruption, you don't look one, re one year out. And that's what Grizzle's purpose has always been. Uh, look at the big picture, uh, but uh, show your work. And yeah. we always show our work. Yeah. And speaking of big picture, so why do we get into the topics? First, we have Musk is reaching out to the Kremlin. Why? <laughs> yeah, Scott, you want to read this? So give the give the give the listeners a a, a you know time time uh, time stamp here of what what the hell has gone on here. Yeah, this is how it all started. I guess Elon Musk tweeted at the Kremlin. I, I didn't even know it was that easy. You could just say at Kremlin Russia. There you yeah. go. He said, "Would you like to join me for a conversation on Clubhouse? I'm sure they'll talk about cryptocurrencies." I'm sure they'll talk about Tesla. So if that ends up happening, that could be kind of a, a breaking down the wall to have a world leader going on a social media platform to talk with a business executive, just like impromptu. That that could be interesting. Well, you know, it, it kind of reminds me of uh, when uh, uh, when Dennis Rodman went to Korea, yeah. went to North Korea. Yeah, this is the U.S.'s <laughs> moment or the Russia's with, moment. It, you know, and I know a lot of people like to, you know, uh, you know, like to point to Elon is, you know, he, he, he Elon himself being, uh, you know, uh, unstable. But let's be honest, nobody's as unstable as Dennis Rodman. So this, the outcome <laughs> will probably true. be better. Yeah, exactly. So it'll be interesting to see what they talk about if this even happens. Uh, but it's something to watch because whatever Elon Musk is talking about something, if he talks about a stock or an asset, it moves that stock or asset. So it's worth following him just for that. It, well, you know, and, and I think a lot of people are, are uh, you know, I, I think when you look at the last whole Trump thing and you know, the puppet Putin, that, that whole thing, watch any of, 
uh, Putin's uh, interviews. This guy is slick. He's smooth. <laughs> you know, and, and uh, I think uh, if this actually goes down, I, and is there, uh, did the Kremlin get back, Scott? They did say that they would be open to it, right? Am I, I mistaken? Think, yeah, so it hasn't been confirmed it's happening, but they did say they're open to it. So we'll have to wait and see if this if this goes down. Yeah, there you go. Um, yeah, so Scott, we can, we can kill that tweet. But the, the, the key thing, Scott, I'm just thinking out loud, the other key aspect of this is that, um, you know, what if this is just an elaborate pump for Clubhouse? This is, uh, you know, uh, does Elon have any shares now in Clubhouse? You, now you're thinking like an investor. Yeah, what's going on here? The webs, the web of lies or web of investments. How deep does it go? Well, like, why does it, why can't it just be on YouTube, right? This is not very complicated. Why on Clubhouse? Uh, when there's not that many people, right? Because Clubhouse still is invite only. So the, the, it's growing quickly, but it's many, it's much a smaller community than YouTube or Facebook or any of those. Totally, right? It has that, it has all the hallmarks of a classic pump the platform. Uh, you know, you, you Elon already had done it with, uh, what's his name from Robin Hood, Vladio, uh, Vlad. Uh, you, you know, it has a classic uh, just feeling of, oh, let's let, you know, let's create some FOMO on this platform, um, get the valuation. Maybe you should explain to people why we're saying what's what's the ties, because there are some ties between Clubhouse, Vlad, and a firm called Andreessen Horowitz. That's a VC, right? Yeah, Scott, you want, you want, you want to explain it? You, 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 know, you know, just as well as I do. Yeah, yeah. It, it's fascinating. So so this is why we're, 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 there's question marks for us, guys, because Elon Musk did this impromptu Clubhouse chat where he brought on uh, Vlad of Robinhood, and Vlad was kind of doing damage control. Now, who's invested in Robinhood? It's Andreessen Horowitz. And who's also invested in Clubhouse? It's Andreessen Horowitz. So it makes you wonder, what is their relationship to this whole thing? Did they have a hand in asking Elon Musk to go on Clubhouse, number one, and to right. bring on the head of Robinhood? And so then again, we have Elon Musk is on Clubhouse, potentially bringing on uh, Vladimir Putin. That brings a lot of attention to Clubhouse. Does Andreessen Horowitz have a hand in all this stuff? That's what we're wondering. Yeah, you know, uh, it, it would, all, be, it it would all... be a smart move to their credit, right? It's good media management. Yeah, this is the way to do it, right? Create the FOMO, create the hype. Yeah. Let's go. So yep. there you go. You know what? If this actually goes down and uh, and Clubhouse becomes the beneficiary, there you go. Uh, and, you know, we've been kind of floating around Clubhouse. It's an interesting space. Uh, but period, it will be an interesting interview. Uh, you know, I talked to his friends. I haven't still listened to it. Uh, Musk was with um, Rogan. He did that Rogan podcast. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, so if, uh, from what I heard, it, it's reasonable to good. And, and I think he was, uh, I, think, I think the one thing that was clear, uh, you know, I think you gotta get into these things with open ears, whether you're a fan or, or not of Elon. And uh, I think the one thing he said very clearly, uh, just from excerpts was that, uh, oil and gas is not going away, <laughs> you know, uh, and and I think for him to just acknowledge that too is just a reality of what you know what uh, yeah. uh, what it is, and obviously it's been a big big year for oil and gas this year. But um, anyhow, uh, Putin, Musk, that that will be a that should be a pay per view event if anything. And Scott, you know what? It will be because what it'll do for the valuation of Clubhouse will be oh, pay per view, yeah, yeah. for free in the private markets. So Clubhouse is not a public stock, but in the private markets, it's going to go up, up, upwards. Uh, all right, what do we got next, Scott? So we're we were talking about Robinhood, and that's because the markets are on fire. So let's look at that. We have we have equity inflows. We have a good chart that uh, you don't need to see it to know that the stock market is hot right now.
So what, what yeah, was yeah. it? We got data last week that uh, the the amount of money going into stocks is at what an all time high. All time high, and so it's, it's so Ooh. it's so this is a chart from. Uh, Merrill Lynch, and what, what basically the, the chart is just showing everyone is, is that basically you're at an all-time high weekly global equity inflow. So we're looking at over $50 billion piled into equities, global equity. So it's uh, so really when you take a step back here, and this is a, the highest reading in, in all the time series, uh, you take a step back here, Scott, this is purely a function of central bank money printing. This is uh, central bank uh, easy monetary policy. This is what you get, Scott. People are being pushed out of safe asset classes because there's no return there. Not. Yeah, so what we're saying, everyone, is when the Fed is printing money and they're lowering interest rates, if you own a bond, say, you're, yeah. the amount of money you get from owning that bond is falling, falling, falling. Now it's below 1%. It's almost nothing. So what do you do? If you're a retiree or you need some income, you can't sit around and own this bond and get nothing coming in the door every month. You got to go into stocks that pay a dividend or you got to do something else. So that's why when interest rates fall, it's pushing people into stocks. And we see this with all this money flooding into the stock market. Yeah, it's it, so there was a fascinating there was another data point that was very interesting too. U.S. investment grade real yields. So real yields are you take whatever uh, the yield is on on the bond and you subtract inflation. So like Suncor is paying five percent. You take that and then you subtract inflation from it. it, it exactly right. So, but if you were to, so if you were to take the whole uh, U.S. bond landscape, uh, whatever the yield is there, and you take away the inflation, you're you're in negative territory, right? And that's a problem, right? So yeah. you're so this is why this is a problem. So this is and it's yielding negatives. Uh, so what what you're looking at is I'll just talk to the numbers because I've got the numbers here. Right now, if you were to invest in a nominal uh, in in a investment grade bond, it's yielding something around two percent, Scott, just underneath two percent. Okay, mm -hmm. and, but then once you subtract inflation, because there is inflation, I uh, can't deny that, and we and we can discuss whether the 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 way they're calculating that is correct or wrong, uh, uh, and we think it's wrong. But let's just take their number. This is the number uh, coming from the government. You're looking at minus zero point five percent. So wow. you, that's the proposition someone has when they go out and buy, uh, yeah, I'm going to use GEGs, uh, the classic, but let's call it, you know, a classic Microsoft bond. This is what you get. And that means you're losing purchasing power, right? Because you say you're getting hundred bucks in the door, but because of inflation, you're actually, your purchasing power is going down, down, down. So you have to pay more and more to buy an orange every year, something like that. Exactly. So that's exactly. not not what you want. It's not a good situation to be sitting in a bond that has a negative uh, real yield. No, no, no totally. Um, yeah, Scott, we can kill this graph. Uh, so what's the next topic, Scott? Oh, uh, so we're talking about inflation. We got to talk about housing too, because uh, I was poking around a little bit on the housing market yesterday, and I see some some good trends. So uh, we have we have one chart that kind of shows that. But bottom line, housing market is tight. We know that in Canada, housing markets on fire. In the U.S., housing markets on fire, and housing is a great place to be. Right, it's a good place to hide out if inflation may become a concern. If inflation's going up, it, it, uh, housing is what they call a hedge against inflation. Right. Yeah. If you have that Fred Hickey tweet, I think this is a very important. Uh, so Fred Hickey is, uh, you know, one of the one of the great uh, um, research writers, uh, early early tech investor. But I think this is a good one. Um, so what he says is the median price of a single family home has climbed 
14.9% to 315,000 in the fourth quarter. Uh, this was the biggest surge in the data going back to 1990. Scott, uh, again, when you look at what central banks are doing, this is the outcome, Scott. Just yeah. like inflows into equities. Exactly. I know that the only, the second biggest data point was uh, 83 or 84. I think that was the biggest increase you've seen in housing. So the market was on fire in 2020. We can say that. Yeah. What other charts you got, Scott? Uh, let's see. We're just pulling up. Oh, so one more just showing how, how tight the market is. So th this is basically looking at you have how new houses are built. And you also have new new customers are buying houses for the first time. Say you got out of college, you saved up some money, you want to buy your first house. So that this is the way to look at whether uh, inventory is going up or down in the housing market, whether it's tight or uh, there's too much supply. And we can see that there's not enough houses being built. After the housing bubble of 05, all the builders pulled back and they didn't build enough houses. And now new uh, consumers are coming out of the woodwork and they're buying their first house at a really high rate, especially because of COVID. So that just means the housing market is getting tighter and tighter and that can support pricing going up like it is because there's just not enough new units being built to supply all the demand. Yeah, so if you if just to under, uh, to give a provide a visualization here, uh, what you have here is a graph that just shows housing oversupply under undersupply, and uh, you know we had a period where we were being oversupplied. That call that the two thousand to two thousand nine period. That all makes sense, right? Because that was the housing bubble. Yep. But since then, as Scott explained, uh, you know, then this line keeps going down to a point of undersupply. So uh, you know, we we've got the I guess you can say Scott, we we have the um, uh, what, what's that called? The kindling, if you will. The kindling. Yes, exactly. We, we, so for a true asset bubble to take hold, uh, what you need is the kindling, right? And if the kindling's not there and kindling is just basically you need the right environment for, you know, for that asset, asset inflation to take hold. Uh, if you're coming off a period of tons of houses being built and you're saying, hey, listen, that's printing lots of money. I'll say, so what? I don't care. <laughs> yeah. uh, so what? Uh, and that, that's what everyone should be. You know, I know it's very uh, the whole the whole meme of, um, you know, Fed printer go burr, all that sort of stuff. Yes, absolutely. But you need to do your fundamental work uh, to understand whether you're sitting in asset class that goes up or down. A classic example here is uh, word for word. You can say Fred, print, uh, Fed printer go burr, uh, low interest rates. Scott, I'm buying a condo in Toronto. Not the right answer. Right? <laughs> no, no, you need to be in the in the right uh, the right type of real estate helps too. But I know the, the knee jerk reaction is when you see a big jump in housing prices, you're like, oh man, I don't want to buy right now. It's a bubble. But if you have the supply demand dynamics are in balance or there's not enough units, that doesn't mean that pricing is going to fall. Pricing may take a breather. We've seen that in the Toronto housing market where it ran up really hot one year. It took a bit of a breather. Then it just started going up again because the fundamentals are good. And it looks like in the U.S., the data is pretty similar where it's still strong for housing. Plus, you have interest rates are falling. Mortgages are getting cheaper. You can own a home for less money than you've ever owned a home before. So the, the housing... Uh, the housing supply and the, the housing performance, it could definitely keep going. This isn't the end of the story. Right. Do you have another chart? Is that, uh, is that the- Why do we tie? So housing is one thing, but mm. what about COVID and remote work? Has Is there a difference in how people are gonna work getting out of this pandemic? Yeah, great one. And, and some so people I, think so. 
I yeah, totally. I retweeted something from Adam Singer, and if you guys don't follow Adam Singer on Twitter, a fantastic follow. Uh, you know, I, I'm hoping uh, in the not too distant future we'll we'll have him on a on a Grizzle Live because uh, he's uh, he, he always drops some incredible gems. Uh, I'll just uh, read his tweet from Fred 12. We have barely begun to digest the fact that location is now uh, completely meaningless for so many different types of work. It is truly day one here. Um, and, you know, Scott, I retweeted that. And, and you know, I, you know what I said, you know, I said, listen, Adam's been incredibly prescient on the future of work. Uh, I wasn't fully convinced. But needless to say, uh, a year of lockdown changes your perspective quickly. We, we've been living it, right? Even us personally. Totally, totally. And, and I did leave it. I did leave my, uh, you know, final point with a caveat. But getting wasted with Cubicle Crew is magical, though. That's the one thing that, you know, yeah. Uh, yeah. that people can convince me every which way about remote work. And I don't deny any of it. And, and to be totally frank, Scott, the way I felt about it going into it, the way we feel about it now, very different. Very different. Yeah. Um, but you what? and I, you and I know, we're both social creatures. Humans are social creatures, so yeah. that leaves the question mark. You can't just all be apart all the time, working in your little cubicle in your house. There is a certain amount of uh, idea generation, idea sharing that happens when you network and get together with people physically. So we'll have to see how that plays in to that you can in certain jobs you don't need to be in the office anymore. So it's going to be a mix, and we'll see how that works out soon. With uh, we're moving through the pandemic. Uh, hopefully we get through it sooner than later, but then we'll see how work has changed or not sooner yeah, than totally. later. Yeah, we can kill this tweet. It's got, so the the one thing, um, yeah, you know, thinking about a very high level, uh, when I look at the office towers in Toronto, when I look at the office towers in New York City, uh, you keep replicating that ever Chicago, uh, you know, what, because these are, these are the workers that, that are the ones that are going to change. Right. And, and, and the, and it's really going to be driven by the top performers, Scott, right? The top performers are going to say, listen, yeah, sorry. Um, you know, I like that work-life balance um, because I perform better. Um, and I'm not going in five days a week, nine to five. No. Thinking back, we've already seen that before the pandemic. Think about those uh, those coders who were amazing at their jobs and could get so much done. Some yeah. of those guys would be like, I'm taking a three-week vacation. And they just got so much done for their employer, then their employer looked the other way and let it happen. So they led the way. They were trailblazers where socially it wasn't okay to do that, but they were just getting so much done that it was okay. But now many, like there's a whole new group of people that may live their life like that now. Yeah. And, and you know, and, you know, we, we, we do take shots at, at uh, some of the, the, the BS of Silicon Valley, but uh, if there is one thing that uh, they did pioneer, it's this, uh, without a doubt. Uh, you know, their flexibility around work, just get your shit done, right? Like, that's really what it comes down to at the end of the day, um, you know, and they've been able to create cultures around that too. So, you know, how much, uh, you know, other cities, uh, East Coast cities, uh, really Midwest, you know, changes to that too, and it'll be interesting. But I think there's going to be uh, a lot of, um, you know, a lot of disruption here. And, and, I, and I think what's what will happen is uh, the transformation in cities like New York, Toronto, Chicago, uh, it's going to be pretty wild, right? It, it's it's going to have you're going to have much more. Uh, there's going to be a lot more space in the city uh, for what I call culture, right? Uh, it's, you know, you got Monday off. Enjoy yourself. You yeah, know what I mean? It's, yeah. it's like, you know, um, and, I, you know, I think the. Uh, concepts around rush hour, all these sorts of things. It all of these things t uh, will will end up becoming moot. 
Yeah, people are realizing that commute can really grind you down. They already knew it, but they were like, I got to do it. But if there's a way out and you can save two hours a day or more, like that's that's a game changer for your life. 100%. And, you know, and if you think about it, most of the people who rush to work like, shit, I got a conference call at 15. Or, you know, I got a conference, not a conference call, right? I got I to gotta be in this room. Um, you know, and I was talking to friends. There's no way that now that we've embraced Zoom or, you know, whatever uh, variant of Zoom, that you look in a future where there's a 915 call, you've tried to pack your kids, get them to school, that there isn't a big screen in that room, Scott, with like 12 people on Zoom that are joining the meeting. Yeah, no, exactly. And right? this, like, so this got me thinking about the nature of work. Does it depend on the type of company? Say you're in an old big business bureaucratic place where you're, you're trying to climb the social ladder. Is it more important you can't get away with that remote work as much because a lot of it is like, schmoozing and being in the scene and FaceTime versus if you're a tech company, think about the remote work tools that we have now, like Slack and uh, Zoom. It lets you be there almost. So you don't need the physical contact as much to get things done. So if you're in a tech business where it's just about getting things done, maybe you don't need to go back as much as if you're in a bureaucratic company where it's about FaceTime and being there physically and schmoozing. Maybe you do. Yeah, and, and, you know, coming back to your original point around uh, just getting shit done, Scott, right? What we're confusing now is this world of FaceTime versus getting stuff done, right? That was always the challenge, right? You know, whenever you'd be like, oh, I got to go to the cubicle. What? How much of this is FaceTime versus how much of it is getting stuff done? In this new reality uh, where they're, you know, they've seen you away from the office, they've seen you've been a producer, uh, you know, what that means is say, hey, listen, this guy or girl, Whatever they produce a ton, they produce a ton. Uh, they don't have to. In fact, uh, the cubicle is restricting them. Uh, they'll be here once in a while, but and uh, and the, the the challenge will come, Scott, is when that person gets promoted, right? And the person who's been showing up at the conference uh, table while he that other you know dude has been you never on, see uh, him, um, but he's getting his yeah. shit done. Hey, listen, yeah, you know, that that's the sort of stuff that's good. The, you know, those are the sorts of challenges that everyone's uh, companies are going to face. And challenges aren't challenges, Scott. These are opportunities, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. To, to cut away the bullshit. Because FaceTime's bullshit. Uh, why you want people in an office together, Grizzle, you know, Grizzle knows this as well, is to bring ideas together. There's no question about that, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, Scott and I want to be in the same room uh, most of the time. Pandemic obviously throwing everything off. But the idea is the idea generation, if creativity is an important component of your business, and I can't imagine any business worth its salt where creativity is not an important component of your business, yeah. uh, that's where sitting in the same room, grinding it out, having a drink, whatever, uh, whatever, whatever that creative process is, um, you know, that's what, that's the magic of getting uh, wasted with your colleagues. Yeah. Not to mention teaching younger workers, some motivation, some learning, there's some aspects of that that's harder to make that work remotely. But I mean, I just, I'm wondering, think about the pure office manager who all they do is manage people. They actually aren't working on a project. What does their life look like, right? Like, can they get it done remotely? Or are they like the one who has to be in the office trying to schmooze? Because otherwise there's nothing they're working on if they're, they're remote. Yeah. You know, you know, there's gonna be a lot of roles that are gonna be fluid here, right? You know, I don't know how it all, all, all comes down, but you know, and I think there's gonna be a lot of people who talk, uh, you know, wax poetically about what the future will look like. And, and, um, there are as much as things will change, 
there will be aspects that stay the same, but the companies are going to have to try to find that median ground, especially with their top performers. They can't, if their top performers are like, and I guarantee you all the, anyone I'm talking to that's a top performer is not, and they were working the grind, uh, which is very much Wall Street. Uh, they're not coming back to whatever new world it is. They are absolutely not. But here's the other side of Wall Street because your top sales guy, if he's at home close, you know, closing all the time and uh, he that magic doesn't rub off on, on all those other guys that you brought in to hopefully be that next top salesperson. Well, you know, that that becomes a problem, right? Yeah. 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 Right. The uh, because you're you're getting this gap in uh, knowledge transfer and in, in industries like trading, sales, et cetera, that needs to be real time. Right. Yeah. You know, Tom, we talked about real estate. We've talked about remote work. What we haven't talked about is how remote work may actually be impacting the price of real estate, say, in the suburbs, demand oh, for real point. estate in the suburbs. So that's something to, to keep in mind. You want to walk them through what's going on so far this in 2020? Well, we had a fantastic um, uh, YouTube uh, live with uh, John Posales, right? And he and he, so he's a... Uh, a data-driven broker, one of the best in, in, in Toronto. And what we're seeing right now is some of the biggest bidding is, is in the suburban uh, suburban landscape, right? And, uh, yeah. you know, 30% year on year, like these are massive numbers for, um, you know, suburban areas. So it's, you're seeing this hollowing out. The real question is um, right now that hollowing out has, has come at the detriment, not to uh, homes in the city, like I'm talking physical homes, but to condos in the city, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so there's almost this uh, donut, if you will, of these towers sitting in the middle of the city. You got nobody in the offices, Scott, and nobody's bidding on these condos. I mean, <laughs> we're in a pandemic. What's valuable? Space, right? You need to be a certain amount of space apart from people, and condos give you the least amount of space. So it's kind of pushing people out. Plus, there's some of younger people who may be looking to buy a house for the first time. We're in the yep. condos. Now this has pushed their demand forward. They say, man, I got to get out of here. I'm not going to wait two more years. It, it, I think you hit it up right on the head, Scott. So what we're, the real, the real inflation is happening in assets that have square footage. Yeah. Right. But this, this uh, is happening North America wide, not even just in Canada. It's interesting to me because this whole remote work may mean that there's just higher structural demand for housing in the suburbs now than there was prior. Yeah, I, I don't, I don't disagree there. And, and you know, uh, what happens is, is that, is that class of people that were priced out from ever owning anything reasonable in the city, right? So you, there are always people that were going to be stuck with owning a one bedroom condo in Toronto. Uh, they just had their first kid, whatever. And they're like, listen, this is just, it's so broken, but I got to make that meeting at 9am. Uh, I'm not willing to like, you know, go live an hour out. But now the calculus has changed dramatically where, listen, now I don't, you know, there isn't. I go to the basement, that, the meetings in the basement. I'm going to head down a few flights of stairs. Exactly. And so, you know, it, it, it becomes an interesting dynamic now where let's just be frank, Scott, there, it opens the, it opens the talent pool as well, Scott, where you may have had somebody that was very uh, qualified for a job. But they were now they were living in a suburb very far away, and they wouldn't have applied for your job, right? And now you've really opened up that um, you know uh, that that net, if you will, to catch a whole lot of new entrants that you wouldn't have before. Because let's be frank, right? There, there's that you know there's that real 
I, wa I don't want to say sweet spot. It's the opposite of what a sweet spot is. It's basically that, you know, that black hole of, uh, of you don't, you're not making enough money to live in a, you know, one of these top tier cities. Um, and, but you still have to physically be there because of all the demands that a, you know, office job, you know, has, has historically demanded, yeah. uh, you're in this cash 22 and then ultimately you give up, you have a kid, you have a couple kids, you say like, we're out and you know, I can take a, I can take a, uh, whatever cut on my salary. That's an interesting angle because then it, it, it this benefits employers because you have a bigger talent pool now. Because you, sure. you, you could you don't need to only find those people in the suburbs around New York City. You can go to Pennsylvania if you want to grab some people as long as long as they're the right fit for your position. Yep. You can uh, cast a wider net now, which is which is interesting. Yeah. And, and, you know, the other side of that, Scott, is, is just like my fear is that everything just ends up becoming very transactional. Okay, I need you for this, and you know that. Um, you know, being part of that team, uh, which is there's a physical element of that team, but all of the, all of those aspects of committing to a company, you know, you know, now you're just part of it, just a global asset pool. of. Yeah, we know. know personally, like freelancing is good for certain projects, but it's it doesn't have the same impact. I think longer term is building a cohesive company where yeah. everyone knows each other and they work together because there's something to be said. You have new people coming in all the time and they may be good. But there's a certain learning period where people have to learn how to work with each other. And if you have employees that have been working together a long time, it's kind of like a well-oiled machine. Yeah, 100%. Um, and then, uh, Scott, we got a last topic. Pot stocks. Pot stocks. Got to talk pot stocks be, after last week. It can't be a grizzle pod without talking about pot stocks. Nope. Um, we're talking MSO gang, short squeeze. We got stuff, man. Uh, wow, what, what a week, man. So this was like the culmination week, right? We, you, you're, all things were uh, were uh, redlining, if you will. Um, you, you were you were having what is the Wall Street bets squeeze on these pot stocks that uh, most would consider uh, uninvestable. Yeah. Uh, Ones that were like one was not really on our radar because we looked at it one time. We we're like fundamentally this company's in trouble throw in the trash heap but it got discovered last week oh totally and, and scott what is the what is the uh mo uh modus operandi for the uh, the wall street bets uh trade which was made famous from uh gamestop what is what are they looking for yeah let's let's uh if you, if you haven't been following the gamestop saga you probably heard about it but a lot of people wouldn't know all the details it's this new thing, but there's a Reddit channel called Wall Street Bets, and it's gotten ver really big. I think it's almost up to 3 million members. And eight they, million, Scott. Eight, eight million now? Eight million. Wow. So it was at 2 million a month ago, and it's at eight now. So this yeah. so this is a lot of people, and they're banding together. The beauty of the internet is you can kind of have a hive mind now, where these people yeah. are all saying, we're going to target a stock. We're all going to buy a little bit. So we're just putting a bit down, 1000 bucks. But you mm -hmm. add up 8 million people, 1000 bucks. it's a lot of money being thrown around. So with GameStop, some smart retail investors said, I'm going to find this stock. Oh, GameStop. There's a lot of big institutional investors, pros, who are betting against this stock. So that means there's they're uh, selling shares, hoping they can buy them back for cheaper later. And what that means is that the short interest, that's called short interest on a stock. So they are short sellers. They're, so yes, this they're is, short you know, in, 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 in uh, Wall Street parlance now is they are the devils. Yes. <laughs> you do not want to be known as a short seller, anything but that. And so Wall Street Bet said, we're going to target these guys and we're going to, we're going to hand them losses and hopefully make ourselves gains. 
So they targeted GameStop for that reason. What they did is they used an option strategy. And, and Scott, just just to just unpackage that a bit, what they are looking for are stocks where there are a lot of these short sellers, the quote unquote bad guy, uh, that are have taken negative bets and they've been selling shares of these securities, driving them lower. Uh, and you can identify how much uh, these guys are a percentage of the of the overall float. The higher that the percentage these guys are players, the more short interest there is. Exactly, yeah. The more short sellers are in a stock, then the more potential there is for if you can drive the shares up, it's going to force them to buy back more shares, which is just more buying, more buying, and the stock goes way up. So the, Wall Street Bets is the first time they were this successful on a stock. So they all got together and it became this phenomenon where it was in the media and more people kept jumping on the bandwagon. And they did it with stock and they bought options. Options basically are a leveraged way to invest in a company. It just amplifies your money. So if you put a dollar into a, into uh, an option, it's like you put $100 into a stock, something like that. So all of these guys getting together just drove GameStop from $4 last year. It hit a high of $460. Wow. And it handed those short sellers some big losses. And so this has kind of been repeating since, and it happened to a few pot stocks last week. So they've taken this blueprint that worked incredibly well for GameStop, i.e. squeezing the shorts and sending sending the uh, stock higher. Exactly. Uh, and they've applied it to other stocks that have high short interest. That's that's become the trade. Yep. And so Wall Street Bets is always looking at different names and the names du jour last week were some pot stocks. It ended up on their radar. What was it? Tilray, Afria, and Sundial were the Yeah, and it, the it, it was, it's Sundial and Tilray pre predominantly. And last week was, I would say, the crescendo. It really was happening the previous week as well. They, it, they rallied uh, significantly the previous yeah. week. Uh, and prior to that, Afria, which was our horse, uh, was rallying a lot because that was just on fundamentals. So uh, a fascinating time. I think we got an interesting chart. Uh, I'll speak to it. Um, yeah, so what, know, is, what is this looking at? Is it performance? Yeah, so this is looking at performance just last week, right? Because there was a lot of chatter, uh, just, you know, what how these stocks have done. But if you look at, so Sundial here, so this is from Friday, uh, so end of day Friday, uh, so just basically the whole week, Monday to Friday last week. Uh, so Sundial, uh, even though so much had come out of this thing, it still was up 84% to finish the week. That's great. Um, and then Tilray was up 13%. So even though it had hit a high, as oh. high as 100, up 150% uh, at, at some point during the week, it had pulled all the way back. Uh, and Afria was uh, was basically flat, right? So it, it's fascinating. Uh, and they're still they're still looking to juice these things because the short interest hasn't, it's it's still there, right? It, it, they haven't squeezed these guys out completely. So the, you know, the game plan is still open. Yeah, this thing could still run higher as long as the Wall Street bets can keep keep the narrative going and motivate everyone in there to keep playing these. The risk is always because they're playing this and at some point people want to take profits. And so you're trying to drive the stock up, but also get out before it falls back down so you can lock in your profits. Because yeah. these things generally don't last forever when there's not fundamentals, meaning cash flow and the business is doing well and sales are going up. When you don't have those with some of these stocks, that's the reason that those pros tried to bet that the stock would go to zero in the first place. Yeah. So it just it's tough for the stock to keep going up and up and up when there's not fundamental reasons for it to do that.
And guys, if you want to look at, uh, we have a YouTube episode that talks specifically with, uh, we, we brought on a expert in merger, uh, merger arbitrage, uh, Anish Chopra, that walks through the detailed merger arm situation of Tilray coming coming together with Lodafria. Uh, very, I'll explain it in a very simple setup right here. So you've had shorts that were sitting on Tilray uh, because they felt it was, you know, fundamentals were poor, poor company, but now it's merging into a real company, actually the number one player in cannabis in Canada, Afria. Uh, yes, yeah, so you have this very dynamic situation. Won't get all into the full details there, but uh, it was a fascinating um, uh, grizzle live to say the very least. Anish dropped a lot of knowledge. Yeah, I mean, the whole reason you should care is because right now, if you bought Afria and then Tilray ends up buying Afria like they said they will, you'd make 45%. So that's a pretty high return. And so you have to understand merger arbitrage, what it is, what the risks are, what the opportunities. And the way to do that is just watch the expert we brought on. He takes you through the whole thing. Then you can decide, hmm, this 45%, this is worth trying to make that amount or the risk is too high. I'm going to sit it out. Yeah, great. It's uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And 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 then so on, and then we also had uh, uh, turf wars, turf wars, MSO gang, uh, oh, MSO gang. MSO gang, which which has which was actually you know uh, it, it was it, it, brilliantly they they've been able to like uh, you know really focus investor attention on uh, L, uh basically multi-state operators, uh, which uh, which really you know, just mean U.S. cannabis companies. They're called multi-state operators. Exactly, and th 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 there go MSO, multi-state operator. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know MSO uh, hashtag MSO gang. Uh, but the what the idea is just to really highlight that there's this group of companies that actually have a footprint in America. Um, and because of the the law, they're not being able to be traded on the NICE uh, or or the Nasdaq. So uh, you, you you're getting this. Um, you're getting what's what's happening is you're getting retail investors uh, trading uh, Canadian names, which are called LPs, licensed producers. So you know they're, the movement the movement started. Yeah, I mean, uh, this is the new world of investing, retail investing, right? These people with through social media, they can all get together. And they're really advocates for the industry and for the yes. stocks. So they're letting new people who've never heard about this industry, they uh, explain what's going on. They're uh, pushing people to invest alongside them, saying there's lots of opportunities. So this is the big, bad new world of retail investing. Yeah, you know, it, it, it's great. You know, uh, one thing we've said, it, it's great due diligence. Like right now, Twitter uh, and Reddit, let's be frank, all, all of this is transforming the dynamic of doing uh, due diligence on companies, stocks, sectors, whatever, you name it. Uh, there's a fantastic plethora of free, can't emphasize that word enough, free uh, information out there. You just gotta be putting, willing to put in the legwork and also have a healthy dose of skepticism uh, with every piece of information you see. Yeah, the, the days of needing to go to your Merrill Lynch broker to get some research on a company are, are long, long gone. If you if you are in the mix, following the right people, reading up on a stock, the amount of information you can get for free is really is staggering nowadays. Amazing. And so we've started, uh, so there's uh, a very, obviously hashtag MSOS gang has done well, uh, MSO gang. Uh, but uh, we've started a splinter group, hashtag MSO tang. MSO yeah. tang, baby. Boom. <laughs> Boom, tank. Uh, if uh, you know we're we're a little more party focused, uh, you know it's about making bank. 
It's about tank. We 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 include uh, Canadian names too. We're not just U.S. It's not U.S. versus Canada. We can all be friends, right? Yeah, we're, we're all friends. You know, Emsos Tang. Uh, you know, we're all part of the thing. It is a splinter group. Uh, but it's it's good fun. Uh, but it's Tang. You know what I mean? It's uh, let's be frank. You you you're, you're coming to the MSO Tang party, uh, which will be inside the MSO gang party. Yeah. Listen, guys, we're we're all. We're all good friends. It's good it's family. like any epic party, right? There's little offshoot parties going on all around the house. So MSO Tag is one of those. MSO Tag! <laughs> you know it. Uh, so guys, this is our first podcast. We, uh, hope, we hope you it, liked it. <laughs> it'll be available on uh, iTunes, uh, Spotify, um, and whatever other uh, platforms there are. But no, we're going to focus on those two. And we're going to have it up on YouTube for... Uh, the the grizzle fam that knows us from YouTube, so that all of it is there across the board, Scotty. Uh, and we do t- tell everyone what we do through the week. You know, obviously there'll be times when we can't, but our goal is to go Monday to Friday Grizzle Live, and uh, we do that on YouTube and Twitter. You can ask questions. Uh, we talk about the market live as it speaks and stands. We give, we give you trade ideas. There's a, there's a lot. So. Grizzle is basically anywhere you want to consume it. So you got you got the podcast. We hope you're enjoying it. If you want to get some videos, you want to ask questions live, you want to learn more about the market and stocks, head on over to grizzle.com. You can see a lot more of what we're doing. And uh, and we'll be here every day hitting you with all this co- content like this and, and good times. Exactly. Uh, and also, uh, if, if uh, you want that stuff right in your inbox, grizzle.com forward slash subscribe. Uh, guys, thank you. The pod will be back next week. See you next week. Grizzle out.